Let's go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer. Father, it is a good thing to be here today. We are so blessed, so grateful for the fact that we can worship you, that you allow us the privilege to know you and to honor you, to live for you. Father, thank you for the many who are serving you and reaching out to the lost. I just am so encouraged with the faithfulness of Dee and Muriel and the ministry that they've been involved with so many years and their desire to see um, people come to Christ who have, Lord, been given a difficult, difficult trial in their lives. I pray, God, that you would bless that ministry, that you would raise up more workers uh, for them, that you would save uh, those that are there. Pray, too, Lord, for our brothers and sisters in the Armenian Reformed Bible Church who meet here um, Sunday evenings, Lord. just want to pray for them, and I know they've been through uh, some persecution and trials, and I just pray you would strengthen them, uh, strengthen Pastor Vahik as he uh, proclaims your word. Lord, help him, Lord, to be steadfast and immovable and abounding in the hope of the Lord and trusting in you. We pray these things in your name and just ask God that you would bless your word as it is proclaimed uh, this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, um, I remember not long after I was saved, <clears throat> sharing my testimony with uh, another young man. We were at a Bible study together, and I was telling him about how I had uh, prayed to receive Christ when I was young, five or six years old, and, and then I was describing to him that, uh, you know, as I grew older, I realized there wasn't any consistent or, or real fruit in my life, and, and the Father was bringing conviction on me as I was reading His Word, and I shared with him that I'd come to see that I really, you know, even though I believed in Jesus, I believed that He died on the cross for my sins, that I wasn't saved. My faith wasn't genuine because I hadn't truly repented and turned from those sins. I hadn't placed my trust in Him and been willing to commit my life to Christ. And just sharing with him some passages from 1 John that talked about uh, the importance of, of if you're a believer, you'll have fruit in your life. That if you say you've come to know him and don't keep his commandments, you're a liar. And I'm sharing these various verses with him, just how God worked in my life. And at one point, he just blurts out in this shocked tone, you're a lordship salvationist. <laughs> a what? what? What is that? And he went on to explain, you're a lordship salvationist. You're adding works to the gospel. You're saying that you have to do certain things in order to be saved and that Jesus' death on the cross isn't enough. You know, and at the time, as a young believer, I'm thinking, you know, what, first of all, what, what is that? And then secondly, well, isn't it like obvious Jesus is Lord? I mean, isn't that something that, uh, how could he be anything else? I'm thinking, but, but I didn't know what to tell him. I didn't know what to say. And, you know, I'm thinking to myself, how could a person Say they follow Jesus, or say they, they worship Jesus as Savior, but then not follow Him. It just didn't make sense in my mind. And I really wish, at that moment as I was talking to my friend, that I had the text we're going to look at this morning in front of me. Because in that passage, it is one of the clearest and most emphatic declarations of the Lordship of Christ found anywhere in the Bible. So we're going to be looking at Ephesians 1, 20 through 23 this morning to see three reasons to worship Jesus as Lord. Now, these verses in Ephesians 1 are directly connected to Paul's prayer that we looked at last week. If you remember, right after the glorious uh, declaration that he'd been given, in, given the, to believers in the first 12 verses of Ephesians, that, that Paul then moves from that declaration of praise to God and all that he has done in salvation to praying that those whom he was writing to would understand that they would have a, a greater insight from God's Spirit to know God more so that they'd be able to grasp all the things that Paul had been sharing with them. 
And as he's doing that, uh, we learn also that from Paul's prayer that as we gain a deeper understanding of God, not only do we grasp all that he has done for us in salvation, but also there were three more things that Paul said we would come to understand and know as God opens up our, our minds and our hearts to know him. Now, those three things we saw in his prayer last week were the assurance of all of God's promises in salvation, and also that we would know the abundant value of the church and the wealth that it has for believers. And then thirdly, that we would know the power of God that has worked within us. And it is that third point that Paul then kind of dovetails off into these last four verses of this section and and emphasizing and focusing on and, and developing this idea of God's power at work in us. And what he does is he goes to what God has done in the Lord Jesus Christ as a, an example, an illustration of that power that's at work in us. So what I want to do is just have us pick it up at verse 19. We're going to be reading that third point that Paul made, that third uh, truth that we would know from his prayer, and then go into verses 20 and following. He says in verse 19 that we know the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ Jesus when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Well, we see here uh, two reasons that show that verses 20 to 23 are connected to Paul's prayer. Some see these last four verses as a a separate uh, eulogy of praise uh, to God, but they are, in fact, really directly connected to that third point that he's making at the end of verse 19. There's two reasons for that. One is the word which there, the first uh, word in verse 20. That word is matched in case, number, and gender grammatically to the word working in verse 19. Secondly, the word brought about in verse 20 is the same root word as the word working in verse 19. The word working, verse 19, is energeo, from which we get energy from. Verse 20, the word brought about there is energeia. So Paul is making a direct connection between the power that is at work in us and the power that God used in raising Christ and seating him at his right hand. It's really, I think, these verses are an expansion of what he was communicating in verse 19 about God's power in us. It's almost like, you know, uh, in verse 19, he's giving a description. In verse 20, he's illustrating it. You know, it's one thing to hear somebody talk about or describe something. It's another thing to see it, right? You think about one person could describe to those who are outside California what an earthquake is like and describe everything about it. It's very different when you're sitting within one or laying prostrate within one, right? (laughs) That experience, that understanding gives you a greater insight. And I think that's what Paul is trying to do here, is trying to give a a greater understanding of God's power that's at work in us. And what better example could he point to than to his work in the Lord Jesus Christ? You know, that as I was spending time in this passage uh, this morning, or uh, this week, no, not this morning, honestly, I was studying this week. Um, Just as I was looking at this, it wasn't intended to be a hymn, but that's the impact that it has. And as I was going through this passage, just a point after point and phrase after phrase, how Paul was emphasizing one aspect of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I, my prayer has been this week that as we go through this passage this morning, it would hit you in the same way so that Christ would be exalted in your life as well. 
Here in verses 20 to 23, we see three reasons to worship Jesus as Lord. And the first reason there in verse 20 and 21 is his exaltation. His exaltation. We see that in two verbs that are here, raised and seated. Both of them are participles. Both of them modify the word brought about. Both of them describe what the power that that God has brought about within uh, Christ in raising him from the dead. And not only that, but seating him at his right hand in the heavens. In his first sermon in Acts 2, Peter expands on the implication of that truth, that God raising Christ from the dead and seating him at his right hand at the throne had a certain impact or effect and an implication that we can't miss. Listen to what Peter said at the end of his sermon in Acts 2. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we were all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, the Lord said to sit at my, to, to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Peter's point there was, in raising Christ from the dead, in seating him at the right hand of the throne of the Father, this is the declaration that those two events mean. That God has made him both Lord, Master, and Christ, Messiah. It's a declaration to the universe. Jesus is the one that I am exalting as Lord and Christ. That's a big deal. And Paul looks at these two events, these two uh, effects, these two examples of God's power in Christ in verse 20 and 21 when he says that, firstly, God raised him from the dead. We know that to be the resurrection. We celebrated it just a few weeks ago. And that's important that God did that because what it does is it validates Jesus as Lord. You know, all throughout Jesus' ministry, he predicted his death and resurrection. Way back at the beginning of his ministry in John 2, he declared, destroy this temple. He was talking about his body, and I will raise it up in three days. About a year before entering into Jerusalem in the crucifixion, Jesus said in Matthew 16, we read there, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Even a year before, he began instructing his disciples, hey, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to be killed, and then I'm going to rise on the third day. The week before the Passion Week, Jesus, it's recorded for us in Matthew 20, verse 17, as Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside by themselves. And on the way, he said to them, behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes. They will condemn him to death. And we'll hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him. And on the third day, he will be raised up. Jesus was not ambiguous. He was not vague about his death and resurrection. He clearly predicted it several times. There's many more passages that show us this. And the fact that he did that, the resurrection proves he was right. The resurrection proves that Jesus is who he said he was. And this is important to understand because not only does it prove he was right, it also shows that he was validated before the Father. Remember his prayer in John 17 as he was praying to the Father that night uh, before the crucifixion and he said, I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work which you've given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory that I had with you before the world was. 
You know, if if God had not raised Jesus from the dead, that prayer would have gone unanswered. Jesus would have not been validated. He would have no stamp of approval by the Father. Resurrection is very important. The resurrection is what shows that God's saying, this is Lord. He is Lord and He is Christ. Romans 1.4 says that Jesus was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. According to the Spirit of Holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. So that resurrection was the certification of the ministry of Christ, the, the validation, the proof that He was who He said He was, and the stamp of God's approval that this indeed is, He is Lord and Christ. And Paul says that not only did God raise Jesus from the dead, but he also focuses on the second point there, which is his um, exaltation to the right hand of the throne, his enthronement at the right hand of the Father. He mentions that in verse 20 where he says, The Father seated Christ at his right hand in the heavenlies. That phrase is mentioned a lot in the New Testament, Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father. But just what does it mean? Obviously, God doesn't have a literal right hand that Jesus is sitting next to physically. Jesus has a physical body, but the Father does not. What's he talking about there? Well, we see in the Old Testament many examples. The right hand was the place of honor, of authority, of power, of strength, of deliverance. Exodus fifteen six. you know, after God had delivered the Israelites through the Red Sea and crushed the Egyptian army, Moses sang out, as part of his song to the Lord, Your right hand, O Lord, is majestic in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. Psalm eighty nine eleven declares, The heavens are yours, the earth also is yours, the world and all it contains. You have a strong arm. Your hand is mighty. Your right hand is exalted. Many other examples of that, but scripturally, sorry you lefties, but the right hand was seen as or described as the place of honor, of authority. So to sit at the king's right hand was essentially that was the place of the king's authority. That showed this person had the honor, the authority as king. These texts and many others declare that Jesus sits at the right hand of God, that he's been exalted and he's been exalted to a place unique over any other. There's no other person sitting at the right hand of the Father. Nobody else is there. Yes, there are lots of believers in heaven. There are lots of angels there. But no one is sitting at God's right hand. Right? One commentator said, uh, angels uh, are standing before or, 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 or uh, laying prostrate before God, but only one is sitting next to Him. And that is the Son And Paul adds, he emphasizes Christ's authority at his right hand when he adds that Jesus is seated far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Now, those four terms are interesting terms. Um, They they can refer to human leaders. They can refer to governments. But here, Paul is referring specifically to angelic beings. He's referring specifically to spiritual beings. And I say this for three reasons. The first is that where is Jesus seated? He's seated in the heavenlies, right? Right? And it says there he's far above all rulers, powers, and authorities in the heavenlies. Secondly, if you look elsewhere in Ephesians, Paul uses these same terms to describe angelic forces. In Ephesians 3.10, he speaks of the mystery of the church being revealed so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenlies. Ephesians 6.2, Paul said, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against what? rulers against the powers against the world forces of this darkness against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places 
Peter even mentions this, that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father in 1 Peter 3.22, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. Also, too, in Jewish writings in the time period, there are some examples where these four terms are used to describe angels, angelic forces. They also refer to demons. That's what in Ephesians 6, 6, that's what he's talking about there, the spiritual forces of wickedness. So why didn't Paul just say that? Why didn't Paul just say he's far above all the angels, all the demons, all the spiritual beings in the universe? Why use these terms, rulers, powers, dominions, authorities? I think what Paul is doing here is he's trying to express and emphasize that Jesus is over every kind of power that exists. Every angelic being, every demonic force, every spirit power, no matter their rank, no matter their power, no matter what level they're at. Jesus is over all of them. There's none that are greater than him. And he emphasizes this point in verse 21 when he says, Jesus is over all these powers and every name that is named. And I think partly what he's referring to there is there was a practice among the heretics in Paul's day where many were involved in this angelic worship and they were placing angels above Jesus or at least comparable to Christ. Sound familiar to any cults we have today? Hmm. It's almost like the things don't change a whole lot, do they? Well, back in that time, there were many that were involved in this angelic worship and they were given names and titles and categories and intricate systems there and, and, and the angels and diff, the hierarchy there and everything. So Jesus was trying to emphasize, look, it doesn't matter what name they have, what title they have, what category they have. Jesus is far above them all. He is far above them all. In their worship of angels, they had, um, you know, as I said, developed this system. And and Paul's saying, hey, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. And Paul also adds, and by the way, not only is he far above all rulers and powers and authorities and dominions, not only any name that's named, but also in this age and the one to come. He wants to make it clear, Jesus for all time, both now and in eternity, is far above all of these spirit beings, all these powers, everything in the universe. Jesus is exalted far above for all time. And I think Paul here is just taking what Peter said in Acts 2, that God has made him both Lord and Christ, and he is uh, developing that, helping to explain what that means. But the question is, what's the significance of all this? I mean, let's think about this for a minute. Okay, God raised Christ from the dead. Jesus lived the perfect life, predicted that he would die and rise again. God validated that. God validated him as Lord in Christ, raised him from the dead, seated him at his right hand. Well, of course, right? Isn't he God the Son? Didn't he just go back to where he was before he became a man? I mean, what's the big deal here, Paul? Why is this so important? Why are you making such an emphasis of this as an example of God's power that's at work in us? Well, the reason is this. The exaltation is such a big deal because Jesus was a man. Jesus was fully human. God exalted a man to sit at his right hand. God rose a man from the dead. God made a man both Lord and Christ. It's the same man who was born as a baby and laid within that manger. It's the same man who was a toddler before whom the Magi gave those gifts. The same man who as a 12-year-old was in the temple, dialoguing, interacting with the rabbis. And it's that same man who was a young preacher at 30 years old, that same man who suffered hunger and fatigue and sorrow and tears. It's the same man who was betrayed with a kiss, who was beaten mercilessly, who was hung upon a cross. The same man who bled human blood on our behalf. It's the same man who was died 
who died and was buried in the tombs. The same man predicted in Genesis 3. It's the same man who God said would sit upon the throne of David in 2 Samuel 7. It's the same man who was called a man of sorrows in Isaiah 53 who would bear all of our iniquities. It is that man who was raised from the dead. It is that man who was given a resurrection body. It was that man who was lifted to the right hand of the Father on high. It was that man who there remains as an intercessor for us. It is that man who was exalted over all creation. It was that man who was made Lord in Christ. Theologian John Walvoord said, Christ's exaltation was more than simply a return to pre-incarnate glory of deity, but also constituted a glorification of humanity. Now this by no means diminishes or replaces or reduces Christ's divinity. Right? The Bible's clear on this one. Christ is God. Jesus is divine. He is of the same nature as the Father and the Spirit. He is of the same equality as them. He created the world. He holds it up now. Jesus Christ is God. Jesus knew that. He declared it many times in his ministry. John eight fifty eight. Before Abraham was born, I am. You know John 1, right? John 1, 1. In the beginning was, finish it with me, the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. Right? Paul said in Titus 2.10, he called Jesus our great God and Savior. 2 Peter 1.1, Peter uses the same phrase. Hebrews 1.3 says clearly, Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. Let there be no doubt, Jesus is God. He is fully God. He has not changed. And on this point, the Bible is clear. The church has been clear on this point all through the centuries. The Nicene Creed of the 4th century declares Jesus to be true God from true God, begotten, not made of the same substance as the Father. You know, and the church has rightly fought that battle to defend the deity of Christ. And we still do that today. And I think at the same time, because of the vigilance in attacking anything that would undermine the deity of Christ, at times I think we as a church have have not necessarily understood or we've minimized or neglected his humanity. And to undermine Christ's humanity does just as much damage to our faith as undermining his deity. Turn to Hebrews 2 for a minute. I want you to see this. The same writer who wrote in chapter 1, I just read the verse, who described the deity of Christ, declared it with emphasis. In fact, he spends the whole uh, first chapter and a half focusing attention on that, that Jesus is unique, he is greater than all the angels, greater than all creation. In fact, he is God. No question about it. That same author, in the middle of Hebrews chapter 2, moves toward making just as strong a declaration of Jesus' humanity. I'll be picking it up in verse 14. And as we read, I just want you to see two things. One is, notice when he references to Christ's humanity. And secondly, notice the importance of it, the result or, or outcome of that. I'll start in verse 14. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. 
For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. See, we see here a declaration not only of Christ's humanity, but also of his importance. Because his humanity was necessary to conquer death and the devil. He had to become a man and, and as a man die in order to conquer death. His humanity was necessary for his role as a high priest, which the writer of Hebrews goes into in great detail in the bulk of his sermon. He had to become a man. His humanity was necessary for him to be a propitiation for our sin. His humanity was necessary to help us in temptation. Because it says he understands. He empathizes. Not that God didn't understand before as fully God, but that so we now could be more convinced that he understands because he lived life as a man. If Jesus was not fully man, Christianity is just as undone as if he was not fully God. Both of these truths are critical for us to understand. And Jesus has chosen, and this is the amazing thing, He has chosen in eternity to live on this side of creation as a man. That does not diminish Christ at all. That exalts Him, that He would choose to do that, that He would choose to live as life as a man in a human body as God. Jesus said it himself in Matthew 26, 64. I tell you, hereafter, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Did you catch that? You will see him as a man. Spurgeon declared this. We, his people, call him ours as no other creatures can. For just as truly as he is God, so he is also man. Behold, on the very throne of God above, there sits a man like ourselves. This is what staggers the imagination. I mean, think about this for a minute. This blows me away. How is it that Jesus, the sovereign God of the universe, the same essence as the Father and the Spirit, having all the attributes of God right now, this very moment, is sustaining all of us, the entire universe, by the word of His power? How is it that he is doing that and yet he is a man, the glorified man who's sitting at the right hand of the Father? I don't understand that. The incarnation is beyond me, but it's true. It's that man, Jesus Christ, who is Lord. You know Philippians 2, right? Wonderful text declaring the humility and exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know how much in that passage Paul emphasizes his humanity and intertwines it with his exaltation as Lord? Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a Man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will, what? Bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Herein is the glory of Christ's exaltation. The Son of God became the Son of Man, and as such was crucified for our sins, His human blood being spilt so that we might be saved because He lived a perfect life that we did not live. He's the only sufficient sacrifice for us. And as a man, Jesus exalted Him, or the Father exalted Jesus to the right hand 
of the throne of God. And the amazing thing is that Jesus is one of us. He understands. He, one of us is on the throne. And every living thing in all of creation is going to bow before Him. Humans, believer, unbeliever, demons, Satan himself will be there declaring, Jesus is Lord! Amen. Every being. And you know what, believers? That's our declaration now. We don't have to wait till that day, do we? We can declare it now. We can live for Him now. We believe it now. We bow the knee now. We can declare with one voice, Jesus Christ is Lord. He is Lord. I mean, think about that day. Can you imagine every voice in all creation declaring Jesus is Lord? Billions of voices crying that out. I can't wait for it. Worship the exalted Lord. Well, going back to Ephesians 1, Paul didn't stop there. He didn't stop at the exaltation. We also see a second reason to worship Jesus as Lord at the beginning of verse 22, where he says that the, um, excuse me, he says, and he, that is the Father, put all things in subjection under his, that is Jesus' feet. Second reason to worship Jesus as Lord is his subjection. Not that he was subjected, but that everything was subjected to him. Notice Paul said in verse 21 that he is over all things. In verse 22, he says all things are under him. And here Paul is referring to the fact that in, in the previous verse, it's the idea that Jesus is in the position of authority. Here Paul is emphasizing that he is exercising authority. Everything is under subjection to him. And this idea of everything under his feet gives the picture that often was... Uh, seen in the Old Testament that if a defeated army, often you would bring the king of that army or the leader of that army uh, to the victor and you would place your, your foot over his neck as a sign of authority, as a sign of victory. We see an example of that in Joshua 10 where Joshua has the um, kings brought before the people and they put their foot on their neck. This phrase finds its origins back in Psalm 8 where David, as he reflected on the majesty of God and on uh, God's goodness towards man, he said this, You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You put, put all things under his feet. Sheep and the oxen, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea. David here is alluding to the fact that at creation, right, God had put man to be an authority over creation, right? He said to rule over all the birds and the fish and the animals. And if you'll recall back in Ephesians 1.10 when we looked at that, right? God had created mankind with the intention for man to rule his creation, right? That man would honor God by ruling over it. But something happened, didn't it? Right? Adam's sin. And by Adam's sin, what, did that, what happened as a result of Adam's sin? His rule was now taken away from him, right? Rather than being over creation, what actually happened was creation was placed over him. Rather than subduing creation, he was subdued by it. Romans one twenty one says, For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and birds, four-footed animals. Therefore God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity, so their bodies would be dishonored among them. And here's the point. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. You see, the fall, creation is flipped upside down. 
Mankind subjects itself to creation rather than creation subjecting itself to mankind. Man was to subdue it in the honor of God. Man was to enjoy creation as a gift from God. But instead, we worship creation. We worship the things of creation. Man rebelled and has sought now to find happiness and meaning in the creation rather than in the creator. But Jesus has changed all of that. He flipped it back aright. Now there is a man who is exalted and is over all creation, and all creation is subject to him, is under his feet. That's what the writer of Hebrews 2 said a little bit earlier. He quoted Psalm 8, and then he says this, You've put all things in subjection under his feet, for in subjecting all things to him he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not see all things subjected to him. Right? There's a time right now that Christ is waiting. He's waiting for sinners to repent. He's, he's waiting so believers will be more and more sanctified. He's waiting for a time period in which He will return. And then all things will be visibly to all subjected under Him. Nothing or no one can do anything without Christ allowing it, right? That's what Paul's saying here. Everything is subject to Him. Everything now answers to Jesus Christ. Satan and his demons cannot do anything without permission. They have to ask Jesus. We saw an example of that, right, when he was on earth, several examples, where demons were asking him for permission. Now, if they're his enemies, his sworn enemies, what are they doing that for? Can't they just do what they want? No. They're in subjection under the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter says again, Jesus at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven, angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. And if even if God's enemies must obey Christ, how much more his children? Should we not expect that? Would that not be expected? This is where we see Paul go at the end of verse 22 in Ephesians 1, where he says that the Father gave Christ as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. You see, we worship Jesus as Lord, not only because of his exaltation, not only because of his subjection, but also uh, in verse 22, a third reason here, which I call his, his authorization. That is that Jesus has been given authority over his church. And the construction of this phrase here in verse 22 is a, a little bit difficult, but the idea is that he is essentially that God gave Christ to his head over everything to the church. So the implication being is, if he's head over all things, how much more so than his church, right? If he is head of the universe, if he is over an authority over all the universe, how much more then is he not head of his own body, at Christ, uh, that Paul calls it? And Paul made this more explicit elsewhere in Ephesians 5.23. He said that Christ is the head of the church. Colossians 1.18, he is also head of the body, the church. But just what is this idea of head? What does it mean? Uh, some think that that word head means uh, a, a source, an origin. Like Jesus is the head, that means all the power and source emanates from him. But I think here what he's referring to is Christ as head means Christ is the authority. That's the whole context of the passage, right? Verse 21 says he's far above all rule and authority. Verse 22 says he's put all things in subjection under him. Verse 22, he is head over all things, not head of all things. Paul speaks later in Ephesians 5 of the authority of the husband as the head of the wife and then describes Christ as the head of the church as an um, analogy to that. So head here then means rank. 
To say Jesus is the head of the church is to say he's the one in authority over it. To say he's the one that is uh, the leader of it. He's the one we answer to. He's the one we serve and worship. He's the one whose word counts and only his word counts. Now, to say Christ is Lord of the church is kind of one of those no-duh statements of the Bible, right? Well, duh, yes. Of course he's Lord of the church. If he has authority over the whole universe, of course it would be in his church. But if you look at the landscape of Christian churches today, you know, there are some places where I would really question, is that really the case? How Jesus, you know, how prominent is he really within what's called his church? Is he seen as a religious symbol or as Lord? Is his word the standard by which life is lived? Or has it become a book by which people just look for things to, to find sayings that make them feel good? Or worse yet, to twist what is said in the word in order to make them feel good? Is Jesus lifted up and exalted in his church? Or is he just referred to on occasion? Is the focus of the music to praise him and give him honor as he deserves? Or is the focus of the music to uh, feel better or for what people would want to hear? makes me think, you know, is Jesus Lord of Calvary Bible Church? Do you come here to exalt Jesus? Do you come here to hear His Word? Do you come here with an ear and a heart to listen to His Word? Is Jesus exalted in your own heart? Is He really your Lord and your Master? You know, it's amazing to me how much, if we're not careful, we can diminish the Lordship of Christ, even in His own church. You know, if we aren't careful, we either reduce Him to a figurehead or treat Him as the president of our social club, here in name only. But brothers and sisters, we are here for one thing, and that is to exalt Jesus as Lord. We are here to lift Him up in honor and praise. We are here to live for Him. We are here so that His name is glorified above any else. We are here so that we live for His people, that we care for them and encourage them and serve them. We are here to be His hands and feet upon the earth. This is emphasized further in how Paul describes the church at the end of verse 23. What does he say there? That He's head over all things to the church, which is His what? His body, right? his body he gives here another metaphor to express a vital spiritual truth that we are interconnected to christ that we are part of him that we are part of one another and just as blood flows through the body and provides oxygen and energy and nutrients and vitamins in the same way christ carries the power and life into his body into each one of us that next phrase that the church is the fullness of him who fills all and all carries the point further. The Lord Jesus, who fills all the universe now, who upholds it by the word of his power, before whom are all things and in him all things hold together. That same Jesus who's sustaining his universe also is sustaining actively his church. He fills his church. While he is active generally in all creation, he is active specifically within his body, where through his spirit, are given gifts and power and grace and everything that that we need as a church to grow and to thrive. The one giving life to the world gives spiritual life and power to his people. And as one who is head of the body, as one who controls it, who sustains it, who cares for it, who died for it, as one who is over it, he's Lord of it then, right? I mean, doesn't your body do what you tell it to do? When you tell your hand to move, your hand moves, 
right? When you tell yourself to look over there, it looks over there. When you tell your legs to start walking, they walk. I mean, unless there's a a physical disability there. But your body tells, you, you tell your body what to do and it does it. How much more so the members of Christ's body? Should they not do the same thing? Again, if there's any place that Christ should be worshipped as Lord, should it not be in His church, among His people? I mean, just it doesn't make any sense to me at all. If Jesus is Lord over all the universe, if He is Master of all creation, if all things, even the demons, answer to Him, it doesn't make any sense to me that those in His church could think that they don't have to submit to Him. That he can be a savior, but I don't have to follow him. That's not part of the deal. Is it not obvious that those who claim to be his subjects should also call him Lord and make every effort to obey him? But when someone says you don't need to do that, that you don't need to submit to him as Lord, they're minimizing not only his lordship, but what they're doing is exalting, giving specific attention solely to their salvation to what they've been given, rather than on the privilege that God has given us in salvation to serve Him. Worshiping Christ as Lord should be a natural expression of salvation. You remember Thomas, right? The guy that gets all the bad press. What did he do, right? No, there's no way it's him. Until I see his hands in his side, I'm not going to believe, right? Jesus shows up. There he is. Jesus said, Thomas, take a look. Right? And he sees the holes in his wrists. He sees the wound in his side. What does he do? What does he do? My Lord and my God! Thomas was a lordship salvationist! (laughs) He didn't need anyone to explain it to him. It was the immediate response when he saw the resurrected Lord. This is my Lord, my Master, my God! And you know what that guy did? He became a missionary abroad. Some think was the most uh, extensive missionary of any of the apostles. That same Thomas died at the end of a spear a few decades later for his faith. He understood what it meant that Jesus was his Lord. Jesus has been raised. He's been lifted to the right hand of God. All things in the universe are subjected to him. And someone wants to tell me you don't need to worship him as Lord? That you can be a Christian, that you can fellowship with Christ, that you can experience all his gifts, but you don't have to submit to him. This passage leaves no room for that. That claim cannot be made. Listen, if you do not worship Christ as Lord, if you don't submit to his authority, if you're not one who lives in obedience to him, you're not saved. Don't fool yourself. Romans 10, 9 makes this clear. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. I think many, 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 I was one included. I could think, you know, I can name Christ, believe things about him, and I'm fine. But I don't have to submit to him. Boy, Satan has blinded us. That is a message from him that will send you straight to hell. There must be a genuine repentance. There must be a genuine submission to his lordship. Things that he provides as a gift, just as as he provides faith. Jesus is Savior and Lord, and he will only be received as such. Let's remember Thomas' example. 
Not only in declaring with his words, my Lord and my God, but in living a life that reflected that submission to his dear master. Believer, Jesus is your Lord. Serve him, obey him, live for him. Worship him. He deserves no less. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, you are our master, our king. We worship you. We want to worship you. Forgive us when we have treated you casually, when we have not honored and respected you as you deserve. Forgive us when we have um, not submitted to you, when we have uh, not represented you rightly to others. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are so kind and gracious, that you intercede for us, and Lord, that you um, defend us before the accusations of the evil one, and that uh, you are over all things, and that you are a kind and good master. You're a master who has sacrificed himself for us, a master who has humbled himself. I pray, Lord, that if there are any here this morning, that maybe they know a lot about you, but they have never submitted their life to you, that they would hear the words of your word, that they must declare and live the life that declares you are Lord. They must confess with their mouth that you are Lord. I pray, Father, that you would move in our hearts to greater understand and comprehend the Lordship of Jesus Christ, that we would know you more and and know him more so that we might live for him, so that we might be believers that live victorious Christian lives, that, Lord, in our battle with sin, that we would see victory. Lord, I pray for each one of us that our lives would be a declaration that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's in His name we pray. Amen.